You're listening to the Kaiju Apostle Podcast, a deep dive into Toho's rich history of monster films and discovering what lies beneath the surface. Whether you're a hardcore or casual fan, or somewhere in between, if you've ever thought there must be something more to these movies than people in rubber suits, then this show is for you. everyone thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the kaiju apostle podcast my name is david <laughs> i guess that makes me crease hello crease <laughs> this is the kiju apostle uh, okay um yeah. <laughs> hope everyone's doing well better uh, than our jokes Yes, much better than our jokes. Hopefully they get better as the night progresses, but there's no guarantee, so turn back while you can. You know, not laughing at one of my jokes is pretty standard for you, David, despite how hilarious I am. That is As true. our listeners constantly remind me. This this should be an interesting episode. Um, should I, be. Yeah. I said I was going to nix it, but I'll just be completely transparent. The past like three weeks have been absolute hell for me and i actually wasn't even really excited to record for a while and then i was like you know what no i get a chat with chris like i'm excited about that um so i just wanted to say thank you to everyone so i made a post about a week or so ago just kind of talking about some stuff that's been going on and it was really encouraging to see the outpouring of support was not expecting that um just kind of reaffirmed that we are really all in this together Right. So if you're listening and you are part of that, I just wanted to personally say thank you. Yeah. And I was not David runs the Twitter account, so I wasn't behind those tweets. So but I also want to thank you for the support supporting him, because I mean, supporting him is makes me happy. And um, it's nice to know that we have a fan base that does when I can't slash won't. Dude, you support me all the time. Don't even. <laughs> but so before we get into the episode, uh, I promised I would give Dr. Mafuni a shout out. I was watching a movie the other night and uh, I said I'd give a shout out to the first person who caught the reference. I was watching Hot Fuzz. It was just one of those nights where I needed a couple cheap laughs. So good job being the first to recognize that. I may do that every once in a while. Um, just as kind of random movies coming through. Uh, I expect Eric and Alex uh, from Monsters vs. Men to recognize any time I do a hot rod one, though. <laughs> Are they white men in their 20s? Because I think that's kind of the only movie we know. Well, I'm a white man in my 30s, and it's still my favorite film, so God, I have no shame so in that. old. I know. I know. So, uh... Yeah, we are discussing the 1964 movie Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. And this time around, Chris, I thought you could read the summary. Yeah, let me go ahead and do that. I won't read it like Henry, who I still think is setting our... Um, he like set the bar so high on these mm-hmm. that I don't think I'm going to even attempt it. So, <laughs> let's see how this goes. So... Strange things are happening in the world of Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. Abnormally high temperatures. An outbreak of encephalitis. Assassination attempts gone awry. What's going on? When, when Princess Salno finds herself unscathed in an airplane bombing, she becomes the vessel for a Venusian prophet, warning the Japanese citizens of the upcoming devastation. At first, she tries to bring... Attention to Rodan's reawakening, which is his first appearance since the 1956 film. Then she predicts the destruction of a cruise ship by Godzilla himself, although our favorite twin fairies believe her and don't go back to Infant Island as planned. Then, when she tries to warn the world about King Ghidorah, it seems she is too late. No one seems to be capable of stopping his wanton destruction. In the midst of this, the Shindo siblings, Professor Mirai, and the Shobijin do their best to find a solution to this apocalyptic turn of events, only to realize their hope lies in their former enemies, Godzilla and Rodan. 
Will Mothra help these monsters find common ground to stop the new alien invader? Or will the Earth suffer the same fate as Venus? So yeah, I, uh, I've actually been getting some good feedback on having the synopsis on this. Obviously, we don't want to recap the entire film, right? Otherwise, you could just watch it. But I think it's helpful <laughs> to have that in there. Um, so Faye, thank you for providing that feedback. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the cast. And as always, Chris, I want to hear kind of your preliminary thoughts before going into the film. Actually, I say that I think we all want to hear that. Um, oh. I know. And then uh, we'll we'll dive right in. Um, but this time around, uh, so what's interesting, and we'll get into this in the trivia a little bit, it's pretty much the same team as last time. Um, director, uh, directed by Ishiro Honda, screenplay by Shinichi Sekizawa, produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka, uh, music is by Akira Ifukube, the director of special effects was, uh, Iji, uh, Subaraya. But then I wanted to add in, um, who was in charge of cinematography was uh, Hajime Koizumi. So going through the Ashura Honda biography, I've really been seeing like how important this guy was. So I wanted to make sure to include him um, on this moving forward, or at least the cinematographers. Uh, cast wise, we have Yasuki uh, Natsuki as Detective Shindo. He is the brother of Yuriko Hoshi, who plays uh, uh, also Shindo. She is the reporter and, like I said, Detective Shindo's sister. Um, then we have Hiroshi Koizumi, who pretty much plays the same role he's done the past few films as Professor Mirai. And then we have Takashi Shimura as Dr. Uh, Sukamoto. He is the psychiatrist that tries to, uh, to fix... Uh, Akiko Wakabayashi, that is Princess Salno, who also plays a Bond girl in a later uh, James Bond film. And then we have uh, Emi and Yumi uh, Ito as the Shobijin. Um, we have Hisea Ito as Malmus. He is the assassin. And then we have uh, Akihiko Harada as Chief Detective Okita. And then my man, Kenji Sahara, as Kanemaki. He's the uh, editor-in-chief for the publication that uh, uh, Shindo works at. And then I felt like I've been doing a disservice here, and I apologize. Uh, we have Haro Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka, who play Godzilla. And then Koji mm. Yuruki as Rodan and Shoichi... Shoichi, excuse me. Uh, Shoichi Hiros and uh, Haruya Sakamoto plays King Ghidorah. So I've realized I'm like, uh, they're just as important as everyone else. So I should probably include them. Sorry, guys. Um, hmm. And as history will show, sorry, ladies as well. But uh, yeah, so very full cast tonight. I felt like it was yeah. kind of a uh, an MVP movie of sorts. Um, so a little bit of context and trivia with the film. So what I'm finding really interesting is in this biography, Honda is known for being very, he's not blunt or antagonistic with the way he says things. He's very intentional in the way he says things, right? Well, he said things, excuse me. And I feel like a lot of us could learn from that. Um, so hmm. what's interesting is at least on the films he worked on, he's not, I think this is the best word. He's very diplomatic in the way he shares his opinions. So mm. going through the biography, um, it was interesting that this film really, I think, starts setting the tone of Honda not being a fan of the way the movies are progressing. So mm. he wasn't a big fan of the way that Subaraya made the monsters more like humans, right? They He gave them personalities. Of course, Toho loved that, though. I mean, that's where the kids... I mean, it's hard to root for a monster that you can't like. Right. Sure. Um, granted, I'm that kid that cried when Jaws died, but you know, that was, that's more on me than the film itself. But you know, the, the fact that all the monsters team up and talk to one another. So Honda's quoted as saying, you know, like I use the peanuts as Mothra's interpreters, but even that was something I had to force myself to do. Hmm. He didn't want to see the monsters work together like that, but he didn't fight Toho because he realized, you know, he's making their film, right? But what made it worse is in this film, there ended up being two crews, one working on the main shots with the people, and then obviously you had the special effects crew. So the fact that he wasn't involved in that 
meant that Subaraya had more influence and he wasn't able to kind of probably cut back on certain things. My guess would be like the volleyball scene and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, Honda Top was, Gun could never. Yeah. Yeah. So Honda was not a fan of the way that the human, the, the monsters teamed up their kind of their interactions with one another. And even the, the designs I think were, um, a little bit more comical, not really the route he wanted to go. Hmm. Um, also, so it's been theorized a hundred different ways that King Ghidorah is supposed to be something more than a three headed dragon. Right. Because I think we've kind of learned like everything in this film has some kind of symbolism. Um, hmm. But Honda didn't believe this to be the case, especially since Sekizawa, for the most part, is very apolitical in the way he writes. Um, so Honda's quote is saying, Ghidorah is basically uh, Yamato no Orochi, which is, and I butcher that, but an eight-headed dragon out of Japanese folklore, right? So it's sure. an old folk tale, and we wrote it as a creature from outer space. It is fine for the audience to think that way, but I do not believe it was written with such political notion. Again, the way he phrases that, very diplomatic right being like i don't think that's what he did but if that's the way you want to go about it that's fine i just i don't think that's really the case interesting yeah and then uh going into david collat's book um so do you remember the yacht owner and matango uh yoshio uh suchia Mm -hmm. he played sakai so he was actually supposed to play the assassin in this film um, but he was committed to a couple other films. I think it was uh, Redbeard by Kurosawa, I think. Um, okay. But he wasn't able to do that. So that's why we get uh, Hisaya Ido in that. Going back to the last film, I made the comment about Godzilla's jowls being loose. Mm-hmm. Apparently, when Haru Nakajima slipped and fell into a building, it dislodged the foam cheeks. They didn't have the time to fix the whole suit. The suit was kind of ratty in this film, um, but they yeah. fixed the face. So you notice the jowls don't really flap around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, okay. Good job, guys. Um, and then, uh, so for the screenplay, Sekizawa wrote that Really, the only way he described King Ghidorah was it has three heads, two tails, and a metallic roar like a bell. That's all he wrote. But he ended up getting really involved in the process with Subaraya, which isn't normal for a screenwriter like that. So then he kind of helped craft the King Ghidorah image. And then I actually put this in the notes. I don't know if you noticed this, Chris, but, you know, because every time I say that, I say I probably didn't. Go ahead. <laughs> so, did you recognize King Ghidorah's uh, theme song? No. Yeah. So, it's actually repurposed from Varan. Because, obviously, oh. that movie did so well that everyone was like, oh, that's a Varan song. No. Everyone just... wanted to hear it again. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, they reused Varan's theme. And then we start seeing the reuse of a motif that Ifakube likes. Um, so the song is called Mystery of the 20th Century. So it's when King Ghidorah flies through the city the first time he appears. It's that da 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 And you'll notice we'll hear that later. But what's interesting is the title of that, Mystery of the 20th Century. Do you recognize that phrase? I mean, it sounds familiar. I wouldn't tell you what I heard it from. Yeah. It was also from Varan, which the music was also used for that film, too. That's so weird. Yeah, I know. So they kind of, it's interesting that the the phrase is in both films and he uses that motif for both films. Well, let's be honest. The only theme that I think by this point I'd really recognize is if we heard the Gamera March again, (laughs) because that's the, ever since we did that episode, which if you haven't listened, go back and listen. I like, that's the most invasive thought that comes into my head every single day. I'm just driving and the Gamera March comes into my head. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I can't, I just can't get out of my, and it's the worst one is it's like the kid playing it and I'm here listening to him sing and I'm listening to the space woman just do that little fist thing. Like when she's listening, she's getting super intense. She was so excited. She was like, this, this kid is rocking yeah. our space piano. Okay. <laughs> Man, I don't want to think about that movie. Um, I can't help but think about that movie. I know. I know. <laughs> and last bit of trivia. Like I said, we had quite a bit, I felt like, for this one. Um, so I'd mentioned this had the pretty similar creative team as Mothra vs. Godzilla. 
But between these two films, we had another film, Dogra. So the reason why, in my opinion, and I never really realized this, like I've always loved this film as a kid. I did. I mean, it was one of my favorites. Obviously had my favorite monsters getting involved, fighting each other, stuff like that. Like, how would you not like that as a kid? But it's always felt a little weird. Just something about it, like you don't notice there's not as much like miniatures and stuff like that. So long story short, this film was actually a bit rushed. And it's not that you could explicitly tell that, but the more that I've watched, it's just kind of been like, okay, I knew something was off because this film wasn't even supposed to come out in 1964. So what happened is, again, it was supposed to be a Kurosawa film. It was supposed to be a holiday film, right? And I guess it got delayed or something like that. So now Toho is like, hey, we need a film to fill the slot. So they pushed this film up to mm. help fill that slot. So... There's a couple things like the whole part of, hey, we're going to reveal where the princess is being treated at on public TV, like things like that. If it would have got more time and polished up the screenplay, we could have maybe avoided that. Right. Maybe someone turns traitor and reveals where she's at or maybe they're just super sleuth assassins and they figure out where she's at not hmm. we're just sitting in a cafe and oh they just told us conveniently where the person we want to kill is let's go boys <laughs> yeah so wait you're saying that this what was this about the dogbert film in the middle dogbert dogura <laughs> yeah <laughs> about a giant space jellyfish and yakuza oh, man. are you saying the space jellyfish is in the yakuza or they're just both in the film I don't know. Maybe we'll have to. Maybe we'll have to do that as a as a Patreon exclusive episode. At the three dollar mark or higher, this wasn't an intentional ad. We promise. <laughs> this was all natural, just like the rest of our um, great oh, conversations. Yeah. <laughs> all right, great. Chris. So yeah. tell us what what were your thoughts going into this, and what were your thoughts after? Okay. I, I know we've seen a few by now. I can't. Is this nine, ten ish? I can't mm, remember. Episode 11. Oh, man. Yeah. I've seen a lot of these. And now, yet I'm, you got to count Gamera, Matongo, and then obviously. So, Godzilla film, it's only like the fifth. Sure. But even it just within the kaiju movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the biggest surprise to me was I thought, like, it's King Ghidorah. I, I knew him forever. Mm-hmm. So I guess I thought he would have been in like his own movie. I didn't realize he was part of the this four monster bash. Like, I just, I don't know what I, I don't know why I expected that he'd be his own movie. But I guess I'm thinking, well, Mothra had her own movie. Why is Ghidorah, why wouldn't Ghidorah? So I was a little surprised to see this like Avengers style get together. But maybe even a, Maybe it's more Age of Ultron if there's so much studio interference. Yeah. Um, but it was, I think one of the things is just, I thought it was like, I don't know if, I don't want to say it was crammed because that implies that like too much was going on, but I kind of figured a uh, three-headed dragon would be pretty considerable to hold a whole movie by itself. So I was surprised to see how much was going on here. And to see it as yet another like direct sequel, mm-hmm. it wasn't its own standalone. But you were following up so much from Mothra, yeah, who's really becoming kind of the unsung, like, what's MVP of the franchise so far. I know, and it's unfortunate because let me think. Yeah, we we don't really see Mothra much after this. I mean, it, I'll I'm probably misremembering something, but I know we see the adult Mothra at least one more time. And then I think we only see the, uh, the larva version one more time. And like, we don't even see the, uh, the Shobijin again after this. Okay. Well, I'd be really curious to see how those return appearances come up. Um, cause let's just be honest when it, if you were to ask me at the start of this project, maybe to name all the Kaiju I could, I'm already out. The only one I can now name is Mechagodzilla. So I'm like looking at lists like, wait, we're five in and there's still how many? Oh, how many monsters yeah. am I still about to meet? <laughs> so 
Yeah, I was, I was, I had a moment where I was like, wait, well, this is like truly unknown territory coming out of this until we get to 1998's Matthew Broderick masterpiece. How many times do I have to tell you we're not watching that one? How many times do I have to convince you that we will? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even because I hate it. I just know no one would listen to it. I want all of our dedicated listeners to DM David right now with your support of me and Godzilla 1998, please. I mean, I guess I did take a movie off of the list, so we could probably fit it in there. I think, considering our schedule being booked until 2022, or until, you know, the heat death of the universe, yeah. we can make it fit. <laughs> Speaking of heat death of the universe... Kind of a interesting start to the film, right? Just discussing, like, I don't know. So, yeah, let's actually get into the film a little bit before we hit the themes here. So, I think in the biography, it mentions that this is, with how well this film does, it really severs the tie between how the film started dealing with nukes and warfare mm-hmm. and ethics, and now we're getting into success and commercialism and how do we keep this gravy train rolling right um but yeah this film really i mean we've we've got some stuff to talk about but this is i feel like the start of us really having to dig deep in these films compared to the last few right and that's probably gonna be a good exercise for us but i know even watching it twice like I am incredibly indebted to a conversation I had with uh, a G-man on sci-fi. I keep wanting to use his name because he's going to be guesting on a later episode. But then I'm like, I know he's got his account anonymous for a reason because, well, I mean, it's just professional life, right? I get it. Um, But we had a really good chat last night where a lot of this stuff, I mean, it's absolutely indebted to his his thoughts. (coughs) Man. I'm just burping and sneezing all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, this this he's watched this film so many more times than I have. So, I mean, just these thoughts that he's had, these ideas that he has, I mean, I, I never would have come up with them on my own. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it starts out with UFOs, a UFO society meeting, right? And then dealing with global warming. It just... The guys from Monsters vs. Men brought up a good point. It's almost like this film has so many different things it wants to discuss and it just doesn't mm. want to focus on anything. It's so <laughs> all over the place. And I know we're not a review podcast, but I'm like, I just, it's a fun film, but there's no like, let's what's stick. the core? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's a good, good way to put it. There's no actual like, I, I wouldn't say a foundational message in this, but again, I feel like this is where we start seeing the, you know, Toho really getting involved in trying to how to direct this. Obviously, you're going to let your screenwriters write they write, but in his later life, I mean, Ishiro Honda was very vocal and just like not being a fan of how these movies were going. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm thankful for him. I enjoy them, but it's a very marked difference. I feel like I don't know. How did yeah. you feel about that? Well, I don't want to take us on the same, like, uh, many rabbit trailed critique that we just gave. So I'm not going to give every comment I have on this thought yet, but Mm -hmm. I think, like, just the fact of what King Ghidorah is, or maybe what it isn't, already kind of signals that shift. Because it used to be these are just giant animals or giant Mm -hmm. nuclear radiated dinosaurs. And now we've come to our first truly, like, we have dragons. He's an in alien. Like mythology. What? I mean, he's an alien. Yeah. Well, but even like we, I mean, imagine the greys, like from common alien interpretations, they're just small, naked humans. Mm-hmm. So we have dragons in mythology and we can get into some of those mythological dragons in a minute. But the fact that this movie kind of is our first shift away from like recognizable aliens and even oh, okay, gotcha. or recognizable monsters. Mm-hmm. That's that kind of signaled to me. It's like even that was enough. Was enough for me to go wait. Something's something's moving here. Yeah, because we've moved from animals and dinosaurs, not just aliens, but just to dragons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. It's it's becoming a little 
maybe we talked last episode, it's more universal, maybe mm-hmm. that it's not focused on Japan and surviving Japanese tragedy. But yeah, I'm wondering how long you can not talk about a specific context and still have something to say. Yeah. And again, it's not even saying that like there's nothing to say. It's just, yeah, you, you say it's crammed. And in a way, I feel like there is a lot going on here, right? You're dealing with assassination attempts. You're there's all these themes that are brought up initially about aliens and global warming. And I don't know. It's just, it doesn't really, it drops stuff like the whole encephalitis, the mm-hmm. whole encephalitis thing. I mean, it's interesting. Like all these mentions about brain waves in multiple instances, but it doesn't really, I don't know. It's just, it's, yeah, it's different. I'm not saying it's bad, but again, no. I've with how well King Kong vs. Godzilla did, because I think, and I could be wrong here, so correct me, please, if I am, but I still think I it holds, thanks, Chris, I think it still <laughs> holds the records for like the most tickets for any Godzilla film in Japan. Like it was such a big deal. It did so well. So Interesting. obviously when something does well, what happens? You start Copying catering that. towards that, right? Yeah. So we've got, I feel like three topics that we can really talk about tonight. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you want to start? Um, well, I had brought up, this is my, because I'm a genius, I brought up King Ghidorah's just design. Mm-hmm. I know it's not one of the three, but... It is not. Can I, let me, let me just like take like a minute or two, because I think, he's timing me, you can't see him <laughs> look at his watch now, but I can. Um, like, I think, I think I mentioned, you know, we have dragons in mythology, but since we're a religious podcast and we have the Christian roots, like, I want to go back, you know, you go back to the Old Testament or back to Genesis, where he talks about uh, God controlling the voidless mm. and formless, or the void and formlessness of the sea, uh, which brings us back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And you get the concept of Tiamat, mm-hmm. who's not really a dragon per se, but she's got draconic tendencies. And so, that's typically how she's portrayed, though, right? Like in artwork. Yeah, I think in paintings we see her as a little more because mm-hmm. she's got like the stomach when she eats all of the gods. So we we all like a lot of ancient Near Eastern myths have draconic figures, and even in the Bible, when you get into the Psalms. You have the dragons continue. So you have Psalm 71 talks about Yahweh battling the seven-headed sea monster. Because as we've talked about before, there the sea in Jewish thought, you know, it was it was the chaos where evil comes from. And that was personified in the many-headed dragon. So it's interesting now that the many-headed dragon comes from space. You know, we're moving away not that they're indebted to ancient near eastern myths but it kind of pulls up the same same idea the many-headed dragon from the sea now the many-headed dragon from space from a, that's it's the most still foreign a formless thing. void right and space becomes the new like you know as star trek will say in just a few years the final frontier the most mysterious thing we can think of mm-hmm. so now chaos comes from space rather than the sea yeah and it's interesting because when you get to Isaiah 34, you have Yahweh battling the dragon and cutting its heads off. So in like Hebrew hope and then which turns into or is picked up by Christian hope, depending on how you want to phrase that, mm-hmm. culminates in, you know, in Revelation 12 when the child battles a dragon who tries to fight God's people. So it's it's interesting to see how draconic myths come all the way back to some of the most ancient cultures we know and then we know of eastern cultures picks up on dragons i know in like 300 alexander says he encounters dragons so in or dinosaurs which most people would think probably neither so it's it's cool to see like just this evolution of the draconic figure mm-hmm. across all of history now to see godzilla pick it up and kind of keep some of those mythic elements to it by making it an alien. So even though it's not an animal, like I decried a few minutes ago, it's still kind of fraught with that kind of meaning. Yeah. So moving on from that, let's. No, I think the one no, that we no. Had, I mean, I oh, I talk too much as it is, so I'm I'm glad you shared that. Well, 
and I think too, I think what we had the most to talk about was the prophecy and the prophetic nature of the movie. So nah. I think nah. I've got <laughs> I've got more notes on peacemaking. Well, yeah. I mean, of course <laughs> we do. <laughs> right. So let's get on to the women. Though so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, no, it's actually I wanted to get into that first, so like sure. it's I was just more laughing at your phrasing. The women. <laughs> no. So what I love about these films is we're, we're seeing a progression in ethics and the way that just un, undo your water bottle, Chris. It's okay. I'm going to meet you here anyway. Um, <laughs> I won't mute that though. So, <laughs> we do really see a progression in the way that society views women, right? Because, you know, nowadays it's all about, and and I will use this in somewhat of a pejorative sense because I feel like we're moving towards the descriptor of wokeness as not necessarily being a good thing. I mean, obviously like the ideals behind it's good, right? We should, we should not be racist. We should not be sexist. We should not be, you know, homophobic, transphobic, all these different things. But, wokeness is used as like a bludgeoning tool and i think people are realizing like hey that's not helpful right i think um i think it's the nomenclature has turned into like performative wokeness hmm. where it's not about actually realizing those ideals it's just about talking about them yeah so like virtue signaling um, yeah 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 i mean just same same idea but so my thing is like what what a lot of people don't think about is society progresses on it's not really necessarily by time frame it's just there's so many different factors right and people are the same way too no one wakes up and immediately is like I want to treat everybody with respect no matter their gender sexual orientation ethnicity like that's something we you say that racism is learned which is true but also we live in a society that promotes negative things so you still have to unlearn that too like everybody Mm -hmm. is doing that so i say that because when i look at the original film and you look at emiko right and really her her main role in that film is to be a daughter Mm -hmm. and a love interest to two men now granted she has some sway in trying to help uh sarazawa and using the oxygen i see i still can't say it oxygen destroyer (laughs) You know, she does have some influence there, but as a whole, she doesn't have much of a role, right? I mean, she's mm-hmm. just a, she's defined by these men. And yes. a lot of these other films, we see that as well. But I feel like once Sekizawa gets involved, and I think David Collat would agree here, because he kind of helped me get to this point, is you start seeing like women actually having, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, they have more power. Than agency. Yeah, yeah. Agency. Thank you. You know, they have agency to be their own people. They're not defined by their relationship with other people. Cause even in like King Kong versus Godzilla, right. You know, uh, Fumiko is just like continually having to get rescued over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Mothra versus Godzilla, you know, Junko was the one who spoke reason and truth. She was the one that helped Mothra extend help. And then in Mm -hmm. King Ghidorah, the same actress, right? She's incredibly skilled, incredibly trusted by Kenji Sahara's character. Like when he's looking for answers, he looks to her first, right? She's Mm -hmm. the one that goes and discovers where, uh, where Princess Salno is. She's the one that helps, you know, it's just between her and the, the Shobijin, the way that they help save Princess Salno too. Like the women just have so much more to do here which is Mm -hmm. awesome. Like they actually have some substance, but on the flip side, we also see the way that women are still treated where it's hard for me not to think that if princess Salna was a man, would people have listened to her more? And not only that, Mm -hmm. but she's written off because of the way she appears, right? As Mm -hmm. soon as she starts wearing nicer clothes, people kind of start paying attention to her a little bit more, right? Her role it's as David class says, it's almost like the woman makes the, the clothes make the woman. And mm-hmm. really it's just, it's, it's, it's strange to see that she's the one who's trying to save the world, but no one's willing to give her a chance. And 
I mean, in a way, that's something we still we still see in today's society where women are like directors or involved in the arts. They're written off because it's a male dominated industry. Yeah. Well, and I think um, to pull in a few elements from when I was getting my women's studies degree and a little bit of community. Remember the episode when they have the meow meow beans and people only listen to Brita when she's got the mustard on her face? Yeah. Because it makes her sound less shrill because she's more relatable because it's like, (laughs) oh, she's not horrible. She's she got mustard on her face. That's an that's adorable. Um, But thinking of like we talked about in one of my classes, women in business, like women affirming themselves or women being confident or speaking. uh, I, I wouldn't say like imperatives but she definitely had some warnings that necessitated a response people write women in office shrill harsh overbearing so emotional there is something interesting to think like you know in the 2010s we Britta had to look sillier with the mustard but in the 60s so i know how to dress up mm-hmm. whereas i think now if a woman who is super well dressed started saying this kind of stuff, we'd be like, well, excuse me, who are you, Mrs. Money? What are you doing with your incredible wealth? Excuse me, princess. <laughs> oh. Uh. <laughs> that dates me a little bit, I feel like. Well, I got it. I just don't ever want to watch the source material. No, I know. I know. <laughs> God, what, what did they do to Link there? Um, <sighs> but yeah, I just, it's interesting. Again, and it's not that, it's just it's interesting to me. It's not that there's no other films doing this, but I mean Honda and Sekizawa very clearly wanted to give his give the women a reason to be in the film rather than just mm-hmm. to be plot dressing, right? And, and unfortunately, in a lot of action films and sci-fi films, that's not always the case. They're relegated to being romantic interest. They're relegated to being just exposition. I mean, in the newest Godzilla film, there's a character in there like literally the only thing she does is hand out like she she she's an exposition machine and she says one really pithy sarcastic line like it sucks mm. because you could pretty much take her out of the whole film and you wouldn't notice that she's gone and that shouldn't be the case so we're not really seeing that here. So I, I appreciate that. It's something that, you know, I, I love my wife. She's a very strong, very smart, very just driven and motivated and integritous woman. So of, of course I want to see that in film too. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's important to me. Yeah. And again, not to get into too much gender essentialism, but there is something about Mothra being the female kaiju who's leading the response. Mm-hmm. To Ghidorah. Oh, absolutely. Even, I mean, Mothra herself, we had talked about her trajectory. Like, to think about where she's... I mean, it's the same trajectory. It's not like she's had a big switch. But, like, going from saving the Shobijin to now saving everybody twice, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I don't don't think it's ironic that in, you know, the Hebrew Scriptures, wisdom is a woman. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, and if I can start to maybe transition us into the prophecy, thinking about like where women women play such key roles in the Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible, thinking of Miriam is the first one to talk about God being king in Exodus 15. Mm-hmm. And she takes a leadership role with the diaspora Jews. And then you get Huldah in First Kings, who's the one who confirms that the whatever law book they found, which might be Deuteronomy, is true. And that sets off Josiah's reform. You get to... Well, I mean, I miss Deborah. But then Isaiah, you know, he takes the prophetess as a wife, and then she becomes part of arguably the most well-known prophecy in the Bible, the Emmanuel prophecy. Mm-hmm. And then um, even the New Testament, you get Mary, who's a prophet of sorts, because she bears the word of God in her flesh. You get the band of prophets in the end of Acts. But um, it's interesting because, you know, we want to talk a little bit about the way we think of prophecy and prophets. Whereas I think in pop culture today, we look at prophecy as future seeing and future telling. Whereas in like kind of in the ancient Near East, 
specifically like Judaism, though, we see like prophecy isn't about telling the future, but it's about unpacking what's happening now mm-hmm. with extreme clarity. So what Isaiah is doing is, or what Isaiah is not doing is saying, this is the future. I've seen it. I had a trance in the sauna when I turned up the heat. It was, I've read Deuteronomy. I know we're on the wrong path. We got to fix this. And that's what, that's what's going on with Ghidorah is like, okay, I've seen the past. You're going to get wrecked. Yeah. You need to be listening to me now. You need to change your life. And in a way, the prophetic, at least I think of the way Walter Brueggemann gets into it, it's like, this is what's happening now, but he's calling us into a new existence, how things could be, mm-hmm. right? So we are mired by racism and uh, economic oppression, all these different things, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. So in his book, you know, the prophetic imagination, he's Mm. using these ideas to to show us what could be the way that God does desire to see creation. And obviously, Mm -hmm. in a sense, that is future telling because God will make all things new. Right. He will make all things right. But it's not like on the 25th day of the sixth month of the right. You know, that's not what it is. but I think what you're saying here really does line up. You're right. It's like, hey, I've already been here before. I know what's going to happen. I think it is a mixture of, you know, she does ha- kind of have some future, like, you know, there's going to be volcanic activity here. And they're like, well, that's not even the most, you know, active volcano. Why would that happen? Or, hey, don't go yeah. on this boat. And they're like, get this crazy lady out of here. You know, <laughs> so like there's elements. But what's interesting is like she proves herself to be trustworthy. Right. right. I mean, that's what's so crazy is like, even after they put her under and do all these brainwave stuff, like they still struggle to believe her. Like that's, I don't think that's necessarily like a writing flaw. I think that's on purpose. So I'm like, man, Mm -hmm. like how many more things does she need to say for you to believe her? But I also struggle with the idea that like, she didn't really have a solution either. Right. Right. You know, she's like, the earth will perish if it carries on like this. King Ghidorah will turn this planet into a tomb. And it's like, okay, so what should we do? Like, why? Like, what what, what are we supposed to change? Like, ultimately, you know, this is where G-Man and I were talking last night is like, it's almost like King Ghidorah came to the earth to finish the job he started because the Venusians left and assimilated themselves into with other earthlings, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, really, King Ghidorah probably wouldn't have come if you guys didn't come here. Like... We didn't ask for this. So it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Like, hey, I'm predicting that this is going to happen. But it's also like, okay, well, what should we do? Because yeah. clearly they don't have a way to stop him. So what was she expecting? Like, did she not, was she not able to see that it was going to be Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra? Is it because, you know, she's in Princess Salno's body and her powers are reduced? It's just, that's where I'm also like, okay, how how is this prophecy telling really working here in this film yeah well and i think there's there's an extent in every movie where if you define the features too fully they lose some of that mystery and they're not fun anymore i don't know if they knew what they were gonna how to define this yet because this is all brand new ground Mm -hmm. so having well the shobijin kind of had a similar feature coming to america saying like or to japan (laughs) Say like, hey, watch the watch the eggs. It's gonna hatch. You're gonna get wrecked. Yeah, um, but I think that's just knowing the nature. They just of, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, because obviously we saw what happened in the original film, right? So I mean, it's really not that different. So I don't know yeah. if that's necessarily prophetic. Now, apparently, they did have uh, telekinetic powers, but it wasn't <laughs> like prophetic. They couldn't predict the future. Right. So. Yeah, there just seemed to be a lot of shifts in this one that were maybe I wasn't sure if this is like the start. Everyone's going to become Jean Grey's in the future or no. this is a one off. It, it, it does feel more like if I can't really think of a lot, at least in this era where they get into stuff like this. I mean, it's it's a lot of first you get the more spiritual element in that capacity. You also get kind of like assassins and it feels like spies and kind of semi yakuza so it's it's definitely a lot of firsts and i think it's a good way for them to figure out how to do things down the road you know it's almost like this is kind of their 
first draft, but it's not a bad film by any means. It's, it's really enjoyable. It's just a lot of stuff going on at once. Mm-hmm. But um, do you have anything else you wanted to share about that? Or I don't think so. It's just an interesting shift and where it's interesting to see the way that this franchise is going to move in the future now. Yeah. Between the adding aliens, superpowers, all of the monster fights. And then we're going to get surf rock music down the road. I'm so uh, excited for that one. Get the Beach Boys. You'll see. And girls. You'll see. I, I, I did think about like, how could we discuss, you know, a prophetic voice in today's political climate and like, nope, not getting into that <laughs> can of worms tonight. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Because who knows where we're going to be by the time this episode drops. Shoot, that that Bolton bombshell that dropped last night. That's uh, I'm really interested to see where that goes. But Yeah. Well, I think there's... The only thing that I'll think of, especially since we're so familiar with Twitter Christians, is a lot of us like to think we're prophets when instead we're just kind of loud. Yeah, that's for sure. So really the other, the other theme that kind of came out was obviously the idea of peacemaking where this time around it felt less about pacifism mm-hmm. and it felt more like laying down your your preconceptions and your grudges in order to work towards the common good because i mean honda is definitely humanist like there's there's no doubt about it um so what i thought was really interesting is in this film you know, we see a Japan willing to help the entire world stop Ghidorah, right? Despite mm-hmm. the tension that still, like, it, it still existed. There's no way around it, you know, but they weren't like Rodan and Godzilla where they were waiting for the other person to apologize. Like, we're not at this place where, I mean, as far as I know, you know, I we're not, in the films at least, we haven't seen a full acknowledgement of what America did to Japan, right? Right. So Japan's more like Mothra acknowledging that the threat, you know, acknowledging what the threat is, you know, willing to lose their own lives to do what's right, you know, because we look at the whole point where they're sitting around and the defense minister, you know, um, he's there, he's being asked, like, we want to know how you'll destroy them. So he says, you know, this is not just Japan's problem. It's the entire world's as well. Would any of you dare suggest that we use atomic weapons against Godzilla and Rodan? I don't believe any further explanation is necessary. We can only do our best and let the heavens will be done. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was the most poignant part of the entire film where we see a government that knows the devastation that these bombs can bring right and mm-hmm. at this point the bombs have been more advanced you know because that's the whole thing where even in um what inspired the original Godria, i mean for the castle bravo testing those bombs were more powerful than what was dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki right so that's mm. even within such a short period of time we've seen progression so what would it say if japan did use nukes now like if they were the ones who went through this and then they find it acceptable, what does that say to the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's because even, even in the context of giant monsters, it still doesn't, I mean, the question is still, does that necessitate the use of nukes? Yeah. And would it even work? They don't right. know. Right, well, that too, that too. Yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, David Collette really pulls this out when he says, you know, Japan really struggled with how to reconcile their patriotism, their nationalism, and their self-pride with being honest about how wrong and destructive Japanese military aggression had been in the war. So that's Mm. kind of what you see in this tension is like, we have our sins in the past and we don't want to repeat those. So how do we take a different approach? And it's definitely by setting, by following the example that, you know, Mothra set in the last film where, you know, she acknowledged that humanity deserves dignity and deserves compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I mean, even in this film, you know, the Shobijin, they feel a lot different about the outside world, right? They've understood, like, I feel like they really understand Mothra's heart now where, I mean, on the one hand, like they recognize that like, well, if we don't like do something like this is going to affect us too, you know? Yeah. Um, but ultimately, it's really the matter of we have to work for the good 
of everybody. So they're the ones who present the idea for the team up for Mothra to be this intercessor to step in between Rodan and Godzilla mm-hmm. to help make peace. And mm-hmm. but it, but it's interesting though because it's like the Godzilla and Rodan is the inverse this time, where now. Godzilla and Rodan take the role of what the infant island natives had before, right? We have no reason to help humans. Mm. Humans are always bullying us. So we think about that in our own lives. Like, well, why would I help someone when they're the ones who hurt me, who abuse me? And not to diminish that at all, but that's where the Christian message really kind of takes us a step further to acknowledge that, like, you know, what what credit is it to you to love those who love you? Anyone can Mm -hmm. do that. Right, we're called to love our enemies because that's transformative power is loving mm-hmm. your enemy. People are transformed when they're rehumanized. People are transformed when they're loved, when they're shown compassion, not when they're abused and hurt in return. Yeah. I think there's something to be said too about like Godzilla himself, like he wasn't created out of human hubris, but like he is the way he is because of it. Mm-hmm. And then we spent how many movies fighting him to now have a somewhat hero. And not in the same way that Godzilla 2014 is a hero, but kind of this begrudging, like, learned a lesson type. Yeah, I mean, Godzilla's definitely defending his territory. Like, it's not about the humans. It's more about, well, if I don't stop this, he's going to destroy everything. He's going to destroy my home. He's going to destroy me. Which, you know kind of one of those things where motivation may not be great, but it helped. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, there's definitely a, a pragmatist view where it's like, well, it may not be for the right reasons, but he's doing the right thing. Actually, I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's technically right, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. A utilitarian, as long as it's doing the most good. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really one. You're right. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting that again, Mothra is the one who injects some divinity into yeah. this role right and right. to show what again we kind of get into the prophetic like hey mothra is showing what should be the case like i understand you guys have these grudges but this is how we should live and even mm-hmm. in the last film that was same thing well we don't want to help you you know we're in this position because of the outside world but mothra is like nope that's not how i operate and you need yeah. to understand that so this time around they do understand that we actually see that transformation I think that's a good place to kind of get into some random notes and then getting into comments and questions. Sound good to you? Yeah. Cool. Actually, I kind of covered all my other notes already. Um, Thank thank Godzilla, because I did too. Yeah. Just like really (laughs) quick, like some of the work that Ifakube does in here reminds me of like what uh, Masaru Sato does for Kurosawa Samurai films, which is interesting. Um God, like, it's so good that Malnus is a horrible assassin. Like, there at the end, like, he is such a horrible shot. Like, yeah. that's the only reason they got out of that. Imperial um, Training Academy. Yeah. Which, <laughs> that, that was funny about the Mandalorian, though, where they kind of make the argument that they're lousy shots because of equipment less than, yeah. you know, not mm. being good shots. Oh, and that is a side note. If you do hear random music, apparently uh, Chris's roommate's two stories above we're listening or watching the Mandalorian. So if you hear that, that's what's going on. But, um, so comments, we had a Madison on Twitter said, I think it's for the show of films. What the first Avengers movie is to the MCU. I could (laughs) agree with that as for actual questions though. Um, the first one comes from Faye. So she says for David, which King Ghidorah portrayal is your favorite and why? And for Chris, do you think the movie succeeds in making King Ghidorah feel like a world-ending threat? Why hmm. or why not? Um, for me, I really like the King Ghidorah in a later film goes by the acronym of GMK because um, I do like that they turn King Ghidorah on his heads, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> and making him a good guy. So that's... Uh, I don't know. I, I like when stuff like that happens. So what about you? Do you uh, do you think King Dora feels like that world ending threat? Yeah, I think showing us what happened to Venus helps a lot. I think, um, or at least hearing, but yeah. um, I think 
I mean, just the fact that it takes three monsters helps. But with the other ones, we don't really get the sense that, like, they've destroyed more than a city. <laughs> so, yeah, I do get a little more of a sense of impending doom and danger from this, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where it does take three monsters, but gosh, the fight's over before it began. It just kind of ran them off, and so. <laughs> um, so the next question comes from William on Twitter, and this is where I need you to pull up that link, Chris, in the chat. Okay. So thoughts on the original design concepts for King Ghidorah? I'll wait for you to pull that up. Oh, I kind of dig it. Very, very patriotic for the U.S., well, say. Yeah. I guess I didn't think totally about that. I like it. It's like three Shinrons pushed together. I like it. I don't think... I think it isn't menacing. I think the gold works better. Like, it's a cool design. They just released a, a figure with that, and I think it's neat. I would like to have it. But would I want to see that in one film, let alone ten? No. I would not. It kind of, it kind of strikes me as a little bit more earthly. So, like, if King Ghidorah was like an earth-based threat, I think that would work better. But making making him gold is a good way to kind of signify he's an alien. Yeah, kind of make that difference a little bit. So, um, so confusion underscore Shinji one on Instagram asked, why do you think Ghidorah himself made such a large impact on Japanese movie monsters compared to others, aside from being reused many times? I mean, Chris, I'll let you answer this one. I think maybe maybe because Ghidorah catches the zeitgeist of the dragon myth. Like, it plays on such Japanese culture. Like, the fact that I consider every dragon in the franchise Shinron... Just like every Pokemon is a Pikachu for your mom. (laughs) It captures something. It's kind of hitting on that theme that's always in probably all of our imaginations. Yeah, and I think it's just, it's very otherworldly, right? You're like, you're saying Mm -hmm. the other ones are kind of just larger things of what they already are. This is entirely different. Mm -hmm. Which, granted, move down the road, we'll see that too. Um. So Dalton on Twitter asks, does it lessen Godzilla's resume to have two other kaiju help him take on Ghidorah? Also, do you think this is the turning point in the Godzilla series to the more outlandish comedic aspects? If not, which one? Um, No, I mean, sometimes you just need a little bit of help. I mean, I'm in sales and there's times I can't close a customer and I need a manager to close that deal up. And I doesn't make me any less of a salesperson. You know, so yeah. I don't I don't think it so. It doesn't make us any less of people to ask for help. Nope. Because here's the thing is, if he didn't ask for help, he would have lost. So that would have diminished his resume. Um, yeah. And no, I don't know if this is necessarily the turning point because we've already seen the comedic aspects. I mean, so something a lot of people may not know is Toho produced more comedies than it did these monster films. Right. So it's it's very normal to have the comedic elements in this. It was kind of a natural progression. We saw that already in Godzilla Raids again, and that was the second film. So maybe they lean into it a little bit more from here on out, but I don't know if this is a turning point. I would say Mothra was probably the turning point um, because you had Frankie Sakai in there, and he was, I mean, he was a hoot. So I'm going to side with David because I don't know what the rest look like. (laughs) (laughs) Um so Alex on Instagram, this is kind of a comic question. I don't really see Ghidorah, the three headed monster as a Godzilla movie, or at least not solely a Godzilla movie. This was the first big crossover for Toho sci-fi films and such. No monster gets more billing over the other. The Japanese title for the movie is three giant monsters, earth's greatest battle. All three Mayan monsters get equal mine, 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 uh, get equal billing, and I think the only reason Ghidorah got left out is because he's the new villain facing our already established protagonists. I see sure. this movie as a Godzilla movie just as much as it is a Rodan or Mothra movie. I think this also applies for some later Godzilla films such as Invasion of the Astro Monster and Destroy All Monsters, but we aren't quite there just yet. What do you guys think? <clears throat> yeah. I my monkey brain can only compare it to movies from the 2010s. Mm-hmm. So, I think of it like Captain America Civil War, which was Avengers 2 and a half. 
it's like a Godzilla film about everybody. I yeah. think that's fair. Yeah, I do too. I, I think I think it made sense to have the title be focused on the new threat, but yeah, I mean it's definitely everybody's film. There's elements that felt like it kind of except for Rodan. I feel like it was less of a Rodan film. Um yeah. because obviously we've spent less time with him. So um Meyer Goji three twenty six on Twitter said I heard that a theme about Ghidorah and his alien origin is a political statement concerning the U.S. or any other country's imperialism or something like that. After watching this movie, does this seem to be true? At the time of this comment, I'm watching it very soon, so I'm curious. I don't think so. I've, again, going off of Honda's comments, I mean, Sekizawa is pretty apolitical about a lot of things, at least in the sense of, like, he may get into capitalism, but that's not as that's not the politicism I think Honda is speaking about. Um, Mm. So I don't really see it as like a coded, like this is dealing with China because it's a dragon or dealing with the United States because it was originally kind of red, white and blue. Right. I mean, I think it was just something different. I mean, space was Mm -hmm. still a pretty new concept. Right. I don't think, I don't even, what year did we land on the moon or people are like, allegedly exactly. I was going to say, when did we set up the soundstage, you know, for Uh, landing on the moon? Even Stevens reminds us we went to the moon in 1969. There we go. July 20th, 1969. See, I, I never watched Even Stevens, so I've got nothing on that. But do you feel... I'll save you the song. Yeah. <laughs> so do you feel do you feel same way about that answer, though? I just, I don't think that there's anything behind it. I don't see any evidence, like actual substantial from research evidence to suggest otherwise. Yeah, I don't know the history of the space race, but thinking about when Star Trek comes out, when we are involved in the space race, it makes sense to base a movie in space. It's kind of captured our imagination. Yeah. So. Okay, so we've got one last comment question. Um, Nathan, you wrote so much, and I really appreciate that. But for time's sake, um, I am going to cut here to the end um, for the question that you asked. So your question was, do you think the series would have could have continued if Godzilla did not become a hero? Why or why not? Um, and because he does talk about in this where Godzilla kind of goes through like a, a Damascus Road moment, kind of mm-hmm. like Paul, right? Um, so and, and I say that because I'm also almost out of voice, too. Um <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that the way that things were progressing at this point, I mean, we hadn't quite got to there yet, but a lot of stuff's gearing towards TV and that's towards kids, but a lot of kids were going to the movies, right? And you had to find something that the parents would want to sit through. So no, I don't think you could have kept making films like Matango or Rodan or Gojira and be successful. So I think that was the logical progression with Toho is to make him a hero because now mm-hmm. everyone can watch it, right? It's not scary anymore. Yeah. It's something that, you know, you can root for. There's very, there's very evident good and bad guys. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's not that he just woke up one day and was the hero. There was still a little bit of that trajectory. So absolutely. It's not as if they just hijacked his character development, but Let's since you're running out of a voice, maybe we can make the executive decision to start <laughs> heading our way out, so we can pour one out and then call it good. Yes, yes. Um, we'll have you start. Um, I want to go a little esoteric and talk about the assassin's assassination career because that wasn't going. It was as, it was dead in the water the way none of his victims were. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, sorry. I, I totally lost my train of thought there. Yeah, no, he, man, he sucked straight up. Like <laughs> first you can't even get the plane right. And then he, he had perfect opportunity to stab her, like all this exposition and you just kind of yep. wasted it. Um, that said, I am also going to go with him, but the way that the rock fell and he conveniently caught the rock and then yeah. fell back, like yeah. I've rewound that scene so many different times. Um, so yeah, poor guy. Well, cool. So the assassin wins. The, we'll pour one out for both him and his career. 
So, <laughs> great. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. If you liked what you heard, don't be a stranger. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Kaiju Apostle Pod. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, you can subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Lastly, we do have a Patreon page where we have some great perks, including early access to the episodes, show notes, and the ability to have your voice recordings featured on the show. Again, we appreciate the support, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.